and here. Let me, uh, let me open us up today in a time of prayer, and we'll get into uh, our study on the covenant with Noah. We ask you to bow your head as we go to our God in prayer. Father, we praise you as the God who was, who is, and who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We thank you that you have, though you have come in judgment on this world once, that you have remade it. And you saved the people in an ark through judgment. We thank you for that picture of the way you save us through Christ. We pray that we would praise you all the more for the way in which you care for this world and the way in which you lift us up to the next. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so we're, we're in week three of our study on covenant theology, and hopefully it's not been too muddled for you. If it is, let me try to help us out here. Last week we discussed the covenant of works. We discussed the garden. We discussed Adam. We talked about Adam and Eve and how he relates to God by way of works. He's made to relate to God. You're made to relate to God by doing. You're made to relate to God by loving. Everybody you know is made to relate to God by loving him with all that they have and loving their neighbor as themselves. You are built with that purpose and that goal and that wonderful aim in mind. Everybody you know, everybody you talk to is built with that goal in mind. And we call that, we call that relationship, we call that legal relationship a covenant of works because the way that you gain that joyful goal of life with God is through working. It's through loving. It's through loving him and loving your neighbor. That is built into every part of us, everyone you meet. It is the first way to live. The first way to live, the Bible points out to us over and over again, is through obedience. The first way to live is through obeying those two commandments, the Ten Commandments. They're all the law. It's that love. That's the first way to live. And yet we saw last time how Adam failed in that first way to live and how we needed a second Adam. Right? We, Adam the second. That is Christ. And how it's really his works that we must rely upon. Now, I've given you a fancy little graphics in the back of your handout. Uh, they're, they're from a great book by a guy named Brandon Crow. Um, I can give that to you if you need the, the, the material. But, uh, you know, I'm not the graphic designer here, so I figured I'd let him do it. Um, and he does a wonderful way of kind of displaying to us the distinction between this way of living, the covenant of works, and the other way the Bible sets forth, which is the covenant of grace. And so for most of the rest of the class, what we're going to be talking about is this one big covenant of grace. If you, if you plot the Bible on a little timeline, you plot the Bible on a timeline, and here is the fun little garden, right, with the little tree. Here's Eden. From the very beginning, you have this track that says work, love, Love God, love neighbor. You have this track of salvation that says, if you love God with everything you have, if you love your neighbor, you can achieve this. That's why everybody's still working today. That's why people are working today. That's why people are at their jobs today. That's why there's something in you that, that says, shouldn't I be somewhere else? Right? There's something natural within us that says, I need to be working. I need to be earning. I need to be doing. I need to be making. But alongside this track, and this is the little chart that I have for you, uh, 
on the front of your handout, comparing these two ways to live, there's a second track. There's a gracious track. There are two tracks to living, two ways to live. The law says do this, the gospel says it's done. The law says run, only the gospel gives you the legs to run. The law says love, only the gospel gives you that ability, that full desire to love people, not for what they can give you, but for them, for who they are, humans. You see, there is this dual track, and all the rest of the Bible, we're going to look at it. You see it here on the back. I hate to keep asking you to flip over. But you see with Noah, with Moses, with Abraham, with David, and the new covenant, there is this one big covenant of grace. And a lot of folks will find out, because we're going to compare this to other ways Christians divvy up the Bible. We'll find that a lot of folks are confused in this point. And they say that, well, there's all these little individual covenants, and they're not really put together. No, no, they're put together. As we'll see this morning, they're put together because they're based upon God's saving grace. And so it's very important that we understand just at the get-go that you were either a person in Adam and trying to love and trying to work, or you were a person in Christ. You're either a human being who is trying to love everybody and love God by yourself, with a support network maybe, or you are in Jesus Christ and he's given you all the support you need, you will ever need. He's given you all that you need. And he's done it all, right? Of course, this uh, may be familiar to us, but we need to look and see how that plays out. I will probably reprint this chart and give it to you down the road, but just to open up with this basic idea, two ways to live, works or grace. Questions on that? That's a very fundamental, very basic principle. Um, <laughs> so you get to James and... James shows you how grace creates the desire to work, right? Faith working through love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's James. You got it. You got it, Jim. That's James. You got to buy with him. You got to buy with him. Great. So that, that's kind of just a basic principle. That, that, that there, there are these two ways these two ways to live. Um, now, we come to the first official use of the word covenant in the Bible, and it's a tricky one. You know, it, it would be nice, I guess, if, the, if God gave us the Bible, and if he wanted to tell us about his covenant of grace, he should start with a really easy example, but he gives us a tricky one. He gives us a, a tricky one off right the bat. The very first use of the word covenant in the Bible Turn to Genesis chapter 6, please. We'll be there. We'll be in chapter 6 through chapter 9 this morning. We come to Noah. Now, before we, we get to chapter 6, I do want to read a little bit here from chapter 5. The birth of Noah. We skip over the birth of Noah, and we really shouldn't. Chapter 5, verse 28, I'll read it. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
Lamech. Lamech's this guy. And he gives birth to a son, Noah. And it's fascinating here because he, he calls his name Noah and he says, You will bring us rest, relief from work, from pain, because of the ground that God cursed. Now, if you have time and you want to have fun with the Bible, you can compare Genesis 3.17 and Genesis 5.29. And you'll find out that Lamech's order, cursed, ground, pain, is the inversion, the opposite of the curse given to Adam. Pain, ground, cursed. When, when the Lord says, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you will eat all the days of your life. Lamech names Noah as an expression of faith. He is saying, this may be the one who will deliver us from the curse. He's hoping that this is the one that God will send to, well, deliver us from the curse of toil, the curse of the pain of work. The name Noah means rest, and the real question is, uh, how will Noah provide rest? And what is God communicating through this, this covenant? Well, let's, uh, let's begin here with uh, looking at the background, the context of Noah. Um, Chapter 6, <clears throat> if somebody could read uh, verse 1, all the, I know it's a long reading, all the way through verse 8 of chapter 6 of Genesis. Somebody who's not me. Thanks, Lance. Very good. Thank you, Lance. Now, I know you all want me to answer who are the Nephilim, right? Um, I'm not going to do that because uh, that's not the main question in this text. It's always very important that we read well. A lot of folks don't read well. It impacts how you read the Bible. We have to listen to what the focus is in this text. The focus is not on who are the Nephilim. Uh, if you want me to, to tell you, I, I mean, I, I'd have to say, I think probably they are the traditional view. I think is still uh, a fairly good view that they are angelic beings. But that's not the, again, the, the Bible does not, does not say, I, I don't think you actually establish um, 
one way or the other, besides the fact that sons of God are often used not to refer to humanity in the Old Testament, but refer to angels. Nonetheless, that's not the important thing. The important thing is to realize that the institution of marriage is valuable and sacred, and something is happening here that is a problem. I don't know what it is. We don't have all the details. But verse 5 is the clear. Look at the clear thing. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The emphasis is on our culpability, the culpability not of angels, but of humanity. It doesn't matter who the Nephilim were in that sense. Were they giants? Were they angels? Who knows? The focus is on we have sinned. The trajectory is a persistent sinfulness. And in contrast to that sinfulness, we have the very last verse, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Consistent with Noah's favor is that he obeys God. He listens to God. You see it in the next verse we didn't read, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we have this depiction, right, in this, in this opening covenant here. There is evil. There's sin. There's awful things that are happening. There is wickedness. And there is one man. One man stands against the tide. One man. You might even call him, in some sense, a representative man. He is blameless in his generation. Now, blameless does not mean perfect. Don't get trapped up in that. does not mean he hath no sin. Righteousness does not mean he's perfect, but it does mean that there's no foothold for Satan or for anyone to grab onto him, to attack him. He has no obvious fault or flaw. If you need to know that, of course, you can just look at his drunkenness later on in, the, uh, in chapter 9. Rather, he finds favor. Verse 8, notice he actually not just finds favor, but he finds grace. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. He does not find favor in the eyes of the Lord because he's perfect. And notice the order there. We read that he finds favor before we read that he's righteous. That is, the Lord chose favor on him. And then we hear that he is a righteous and a blameless person. Um, now, we read uh, down in verse 11, the earth is corrupt, it's filled with violence. If you think today we have violence in our world, we had violence back then too. Verse 13, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And note the sin that God put, picks out here. It is violence. It is man's inhumanity to man. It's not uh, poverty. It's not sickness. It's not um, lust. It's not simply anger. It is violence. It is seeking to destroy one another. And then he gives this command to build an ark. He's going to bring a flood. Verse 17, it's going to destroy all flesh. Everything that's on the earth shall die. Verse 18, we'll get there in a second. What do we have here? For the setup for Noah, we have God saying, my covenant of works, my covenant of love, what's happened to my covenant of love? 
my covenant of works, my covenant of life. Death. You're killing each other. Death. You're ruining things. You're destroying this world. Therefore, I've been patient for a long time, God's saying. I've been patient for a long time. No more. I'm going to judge. You see, this shows that actually God here begins to show his justice, right? Failure to love, failure to do the act of love leads to judgment. This is a principle of the covenant of works, that if you disobey, you will be judged. If you break the covenant, if you break your relationship with God, if you break your connection with other people, if you break that, what's going to happen to you? There's going to be judgment. And God says, all right, this is what's going to happen. And then verse 18, and here's where to get good. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And then bring two by two. Take every food that's eaten and store it up. What we have here is the first mention of covenant. That's an official word. Now notice the verb. The verb's important here. There are two ways the Bible talks about covenants and making covenants. And they're different ways. And they reflect different things. There are two words in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that are used. The one is establish. The other is cut. Often unhelpfully translated as make in the English versions. Not helpful at all. What's the difference? Well, establishing a covenant always refers to past covenants, a prior covenant, something that's already been in place that is either going to be formally established or reaffirmed or reestablished. It can vary depending upon the covenant. Cutting a covenant is something new, a new either heightened blessing. So, for example, Abraham God cuts a covenant with Abraham, and we'll come to that, not this week, not this week. But there is an establishment here. Now, here's a question for you. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. This is going to be a covenant that will save Noah and his family, and animals, giraffes too. If this refers to a previous covenant, what previous covenant? There's not been, we've never heard the word covenant mentioned. If I'm correct, and maybe I'm not, if I'm correct, what previous covenant that's gracious, because this is a great, God graciously saves Noah. What previous covenant are we talking about here? Gregory. Okay. Well, Greg, now you're jumping ahead several weeks because I was going to play that in later on. So in part... Uh, you're, ultimately, you're correct. Ultimately, you're, you're talking about the covenant of redemption, which we'll get into down the road. But in, in space and time, I'm talking about here in, in, in the space and time of God's dealing with us in the first six chapters of Genesis, where there do you find? And what does God say? Yeah. Very good. 
Yeah, Greg, Greg got it. Let me just read that to you. Right, verse 3, uh, verse 15, chapter 3, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first promise. I think I even mentioned it uh, right here in the little chart in your handout. Right, the reference in Genesis 6, 18 is to that first gospel, as it's called sometimes, of Genesis 3, 15. The way that God can refer back and save Noah is not because Noah is righteous. It's very important to note. It's not because Noah is righteous. God does not say, because you are righteous, therefore I will do this. Rather, his establishment is based upon the prior covenant of grace. Now, Noah obeys, of course. Noah obeys. Um, now, notice this covenant is with the individual Noah. It's with Noah and his family. It's not with all creation. It's not with the whole world. Calvin says this. <clears throat> the sum of the covenant was that Noah should be safe, although the whole world should perish in the flood. The whole world being rejected, the Lord would establish a peculiar covenant with Noah alone. The, the verbs here... Uh, the you, sorry, the you here is second person singular. You, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come to the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. Second, this covenant, what this gracious covenant does, it guarantees Noah will survive. It guarantees his family will survive the flood. This is a covenant to preserve and save their lives. That's why when, when Noah goes into the flood, goes into the ark, rather, um, it is a ark of salvation. It is a ark uh, that, that brings salvation, notably through judgment. God saves as and through his judgment. Any questions so far on any of this? I'm going to skip over the, the flood itself. We, you can cover that by reading any children's Bible worth its salt, the pictures and the birds going out and that sort of thing. There's, there's material there. Um, but the, the basic principle is that God, uh, God saves through judgment. God saves through judgment. Any comments on that? All right. Turn over to chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. So the waters prevail. Only Noah's left. And then what happens? God remembers. Now, did God forget? No. So why is they got remembered? Why does the Bible use that? It, not just here, but all over the place. God remembers. Really, 
wondering, God, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. In the human condition. That all it means. I think you're right, but if if, if they're not more, does it mean to you? So remember. I think there is. I, I think it's not just that God, of course, mentally remembered. He he knew. Rather, it is <clears throat> whenever the, the Old Testament uses remember with God, it's so often referring to his remembering a previous covenant. He remembers a, this is why in the garden, remember Adam sends and then God says. Where are you, Adam? It's not they didn't know where he is. Why'd you hide from me? He knows why Adam hid from me, hid from him. Rather, he's bringing to bear the, in that case, the covenant of works, the judgment for Adam's failure. In this case, he's remembering his grace to Noah. He's remembering his promise to Noah. He's remembering his promise of salvation to Noah. It's not that he forgot it, but it's as Greg said, it's it's the Bible's way of telling us, God saying, All right, it's time now. It's time for my love. It's time for my grace. It's time for my salvation to, to appear. And in fact, if uh, if we need more, uh, more. Yes, Greg. Yeah, the fullness of time. Christ was born. Right, the fullness of time that the the prom, the, trope, the, full, the fulfillment of all this takes place, and that's what Peter says. You know, if you want to look at the New Testament, how did the New Testament see Noah and the ark? It's funny that the New Testament's not actually really concerned about the question of how big was the flood. That's the question that we, we're concerned with. But the focus of the New Testament's not on the extent of the flood. The focus of the New Testament is on what does the flood say about God and us. The focus here, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that if eight persons were brought safely through water, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven, etc., etc., at the right hand of God. Um, so see, <clears throat> when, when the New Testament wants to look at the flood and say, what is the flood supposed to do for us? It says it's supposed to do what baptism does for you. Okay, well, what, what does baptism do for you? It saves you. What does that mean? It saves you not because it's a removal of dirt from the body, but because it's an appeal for a good conscience. Whose good conscience? Your good conscience? Noah's righteousness? Peter tells us the resurrection of Christ. That is, baptism is only effective for you. Baptism only saves you in this sense, insofar as it looks to the righteousness of another, one who went through an ordeal of judgment. And you think about Christ's ordeal of judgment. I mean, you think about the cross. It's a bloody, bloody ordeal. This is water. This is water. You drown. Christ's baptism, which is what he calls the cross, Bloody, gruesome, horrific. The same wrath that God had poured out on these people is poured out on Christ, his own son. The one who was blameless without any reservation, the one who was perfect. And so if you want to know what 
the gracious covenant of salvation in Genesis 6 connects to, it connects to Jesus Christ. And therefore, you have two choices in your life as a Christian, as a person, really. You can either drown in the flood or you can get in the ark. Are you in the ark? Are you in the ark of safety? Or are you drowning in the flood? I mean, that is the stark reality that either you are working your way and you're trying to do right and you're living by works or you are relying upon God's favor, God's grace shown to you in and through Jesus Christ. Thus far, the preaching a little bit here. Any other questions before I move on to the second part of the Noah experience? kind of the second part of the story. What happened after the flood? What happened after the flood? You know, you got to put these two pairs together because they show the way in which God and the way in which God's covenant is not simply a uh, salvation thing. Sometimes folks can kind of define covenant as simply salvation. That's not true. We see it right here. We see it right here. Uh, you can turn over to 8, chapter 20. We have here a switch from a covenant of salvation to a covenant of what I'll call common grace, what you can also call uh, preservation. Um, you have the old world, the, the world that was. It has been flooded. You have a new world appearing, popping up, if you will, from the floodwaters. And God again shapes it. God again governs it. God again goes back to that foundational, uh, the foundations of the garden, and he reaffirms common grace. Common grace had been temporarily cut off. It had been temporarily uh, unestablished during the flood days. But now God does three things. First, in chapter 8, verse 20 to 22. He restores common grace. He restores common grace. Look here. Verse 20, chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and every clean bird, offered burnt offerings from the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The scent of these offerings, notice the offering is required, it brings to rest the wrath of God's judgment. It moves God to restore this principle of common grace. This is the second 
covenantal arrangement identify with Noah. It's different. It's not based upon God's grace. It's not for um, just Noah. It's for, notice this, the ground, humanity, every living creature. And notice it has a time limitation on it. While the earth remains. We're not talking here about eternal life. We're talking here about while the earth remains. So therefore, this is a universal covenant. It's to all people. God will say, I will not flood again. I will not destroy this earth again until that final day. This is not a covenant that provides salvation from the final day, merely life until the final day. Second, it's not just the restoration of common grace, but God also restores or renews what we might call the cultural mandate or the creation uh, sanctions. This is 9, 1 to 7. Renews the uh, what was given to Adam in the first. This is chapter nine, verse one. You should know these words. God blessed Noah, his son, said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that it's, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply team on the earth and multiply in it. Now, hopefully you can tell already, this sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. That means we have to notice what's different. That's just a basic thing. I've mentioned it before. But if you want to be a good Bible reader, you've got to realize the pattern. The Bible often uses patterns. Like in kindergarten. You've got to realize the pattern. And therefore, you have to realize when the pattern breaks. The clue to the meaning of a text is so often given in the differences between it. And so let me ask you this question. What, are, what, what sounds different here than what you know of from the first creation. What sounds different here in the words that I read to us? I think we can agree that what sounds the same is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But what sounds different? Anything that I read that, or you can look at it yourself. What doesn't sound the same? What doesn't sound like the Garden of Eden? Very good. First thing. Oh, that's not a good marker. That's going to go in the flood. <clears throat> Scared animals. Yes. I had to drag my dog out of the room the other day. She whined a little bit. She didn't like it. She's a little scared. The fear and the dread of you. That was not mentioned in the first creation. Now, there was, there was dominion, but not fear and dread. 
Why do you think there's fear and dread? The why would you think animals are scared of us now? What's changed? Okay. Second thing. Food. Now, one of my professors at seminary would argue that <clears throat> there was hamburgers before the fall. You could eat animals. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know. Uh, I'm not really into either way, but it seems pretty clear here that he does say, verse 3, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. The implication is now I give you everything. But again, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. Nonetheless, it is very clearly pointed out, now eat meat. Okay? Now, to take the life of an animal, what's required? Violence. Violence is required. What was the sin that brought the flood on? Violence. Obviously more, but, but violence. And, and particularly, yes, and we're, we're getting there, right? We're getting there. We're getting to the animals first, and now we get into violence of fellow man. What else is different? You've already kind of alluded to it, Greg. What else is different in this post-fall recreation? The animals are scared. The animals are food. Keep on reading. It's down there. Not trying to trick you. It's right there. You want me to explain the whole blood thing? I may not do that right now. It's a good question, though. But there's something even more basic than the whole, something much more clear than the whole blood thing. I'm hearing murmurings. What's different? One last difference here. It's right there in the text. Greg sort of hinted at it. There's a reckoning here. From what to what? Why is there a reckoning? Put it all together. You have the sin of violence. You have this man in humanity to man. You have the animals scared. You have the animals food. And the culminating issue is, it's in verse 5, it's in verse 6. Yeah, the killing of an inventory culminates, right? The great change. God has seen what happens in the fall. He has seen what happened in the days of Noah. Violence, death, murder. Cain and Abel, obviously. But then on a, now on a worldwide scale. And what does he say? He says, all right, I am going to authorize you to restrain evil and protect human life. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And this is not a, a code for kind of you to be a vigilante, right? The implication here is that the state has this right, as we'll see fleshed out in a place like Romans. The state bears the sword not in vain. It is now to be administered by the state to restrain, right? The last thing here is what we call capital punishment, To restrain evil during the period of common grace. And the reasoning is given not because uh, 
government's good or bad or ugly. The reasoning given here is what uh, Greg already mentioned. It's in verse 6, for God made man in his own image. Whoever pours out the blood of mankind by mankind will his blood be poured out, you might put it poetically. And so we see here that God, on the first, restores common grace. Sunshine, rain, fall. You can go out and you can breathe. You can enjoy the spring. You can know that summer's coming. And then autumn and winter. Because God is faithful. God provides for that. I don't know if we understand just how big a deal this is. That God provides for us natural life. He provides for your neighbors natural life. He provides for you breath every day. Life every day. We take that for granted, don't we? We take that very much for granted. And therefore, whenever your health is threatened, what do you do? You run to the doctor because you're scared. It's not bad to go to the doctor. Of course, God's given them as well. But it shows how fragile and precarious we are. And therefore, how good God is to show kindness to all. But second, God's not naive. He, he renews the calling to fill the earth, and yet it's a different earth. It is a post-fall earth. He wants to make sure that we not, do not descend into horrible wickedness. And so he says, now there will be a reckoning, an earthly reckoning, which may explain, Greg, in part, the uh, verse 4, the whole blood thing. Uh, if you want to connect, right, if you kill the lifeblood of a human, lesser analogy, you kill the, you, 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 uh, you take the flesh with its life. I don't have time to get into all that, but we can chat about that later, Greg. Um, because I don't forget the last thing here, which is the sign. The sign of the covenant. Now, this is where we get into the real covenant dealing, beginning in uh, verse 8. Any questions so far or comments? So, restore common grace, renews creation, and then 8 through 20, I believe it is, we have the confirmation or the covenant confirmation. <clears throat> Notice that this covenant, again, verse 9, is established, referring back to the Garden of Eden. It's established. I establish my covenant, God says, with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature and every beast. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. And here the you is not singular, it's plural. It's not just with Noah, it's with all creation. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, etc., etc. So God says, I do it. Now here's the question. What has Noah done to force God to make this arrangement? Nothing. Good answer, Greg. This is a unilateral arrangement. God has not been forced into it. God has not been bargained down. Rather, out of his common kindness, he agrees to this. He decrees it. He says, this is what will happen. I will preserve the earth. I will preserve the earth. You don't have to obey God to get, faith, get, get good things from God in an earthly sense, in a general sense. Now, the sign of the covenant. Verse 12. Look there. God said, this is the sign of the covenant. He tells you right there. It's the sign of the covenant. 
Every covenant has a sign. Here's a sign for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, every living creature. When the bow is in the clouds, verse 16, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's the sign of this covenant? Rainbow, exactly. Very good. Why is it a rainbow? Because God said it was. Well, that's, that's true. Any other reason? That's like saying that what caused 9-11? Gravity. You know, that's true, but not, uh, not, not entirely helpful. Okay, so it happens after it rains and the sun comes out. So what? draw the connection there for me. Okay, so the rain is done. Any other reason? No, uh, nobody want to hazard a guess here. Let me let's look at the text here for a second. Is it called a rainbow? It's called a bow, and that's very interesting, isn't it? I think it's very interesting. I'll make you think it's very interesting if I have. Any, uh, any ability. Um, it's not called a rainbow. It's not called a rainbow. It's called a bow. Same word used all throughout the Old Testament for a bow and arrow. Bow. <clears throat> That's interesting. Remember the big issue with all the people in chapter 6? The issue is murder, violence. You might say bow and arrow. Shooting a gun. Same sort of thing. Killing each other, murder. What's, what's, what's God already dealt with? He's dealt with, with justice, capital punishment. So what's the sign that he's not going to bring before the right time that judgment? He's not going to be firing bullets at you. The sign is, in a beautiful sense, it is beautiful, you're right, Elijah, but it's a bow. His bow, to be very obvious about it, a rainbow is not shaped like this. That's my poor drawing of a bow and arrow. A rainbow is not uh, vertical. I've not seen a vertical rainbow. Maybe if you have, please take a picture and show it to me. A rainbow instead is vertical. Boop, 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 boop. There you go. What is God doing here? He's doing at least one thing, maybe two things. First, the bow is hung this way to show that he's putting up his weapon. He's putting up his weapon. He's putting up his bow in the sky. He's saying, you know what? I'm not going to fire my gun at you. I'm not going to fire my arrow at you. I'm not going to judge right now. I'm preserving you. I'm keeping you all the... I could. I'm not going to. I put it up, up in the sky. Some argue it's possible. The bow is pointing upward. And God is saying, in a sense, if I do, may I be shot. If I break my word, may I be shot. It's possible. Of course, that's more famous with Abraham. We'll get there next time. Regardless, the image of the bow is very clear. It's the word used. The Israelites would have gotten it. 
And it's a beautiful sign uh, that I think indicates to us that God, as the Psalms say, God sits enthroned over the flood. Psalm 29, verse 10, God sits enthroned as king forever. You find in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, John says, I saw a strong angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was around his head. It's a picture of God's presence, of God's kindness, of God's beauty, and of God's preservation. Do you see that God is better than you are or I am? <clears throat> God's better than you are. God's better than I am. Because if we were God, we would flood everybody else. I mean, if you had the access to the, the bow and arrow of God, you'd be shooting it down all the time, wouldn't you? You'd be gunning down people, left and right and center. I mean, somebody's slow behind you on the, on the road, man, I'm firing my bow. I'm getting them off the road. Um, and yet God in His grace, in His kindness, His common grace, He says, I establish an arena where you can grow, where you can multiply, where you can fill the earth. I establish an arena where good and bad people can grow together, where my saints and my sinners come together. And yet I restrain wickedness. Not that murder had been right beforehand. It hadn't been right ever. But God reaffirms it and reestablishes it. Any last questions before uh, we got to let Jim go get his get uh, the food? No. But I am saying, Jim, I will push back a little bit here. I am saying that we uh, that that God does care about this earth, right? Certainly, certainly it does. Certainly it is. Yeah, any, certainly. Yeah, yeah. But God does care about preserving this earth until his timing. And uh, that doesn't mean that there's a policy that we should follow. The Bible doesn't give us a policy to follow. It gives us a, a love to have. Well, just like our human body. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very good. Well, Jim, why don't you close us? That's all right. Word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for John preparing teaching to us. Uh, we ask you to continue to uh, open our eyes to hear what you have to say in this earth. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.